And if you would, please open your Bible to Genesis 49. The book of Genesis, on and off, for about two years now. We began this series on the book of Genesis, and we are concluding today with Genesis 49 and 50. So why? Why, why did we preach through Genesis? Well, Genesis shows us the beginning. To understand anything in creation, we must go back to the beginning. We have to go back to God creating it and His intention in creating it, and we have to go back to the fall of man. God created everything good, but people sinned against God, and sin, over and over in the Bible, we learn sin is our biggest problem. It affects all of creation. And so if you want to understand anything, if we want to understand gender, we have to go back to the beginning. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so Genesis is so helpful because it shows us the beginning, design, intent from God. Genesis also shows us God's purpose to have a people. God's purpose to have a people. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are very fast-paced. It goes, it kind of flies fast over God's creating of the universe and his initial dealings with mankind. But once you get to chapter 12 in Genesis, 12 through 50, things slow way down and zoom in on a family. This is a family that God is calling to himself. This is a family he's forming to be his own possession. So Genesis shows this. And then Genesis has showed us grace. Uh, Genesis unpacks for us God's gracious dealings with this family. He works in this family not because they're good, but because he is gracious. And he continues with them not to treat them as their sins deserves, but he treats them with unmerited favor, which is the very essence of grace. And so today we come to the end of Genesis. Genesis concludes with a cave, a coffin, and a comforting word. So if you have your Bible open to Genesis 49, we're going to begin reading in verse 29. Then he, that is Jacob, commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, He drew up his feet into the bed 
and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the eyes in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abril Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone to his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it bring it should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Ask for God's help. Oh Lord, it is a holy moment to take our minds, and put them on what you have said. Lord, you've spoken. You're a speaking God. You're not silent. You're not far away from your people, Lord. You're near. You draw near. You indwell us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. And I just thank you for the the privilege that it is, Lord, to receive from what you have said. Things, Lord, you authored for our good and for your glory. 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So, Lord, help us to profit from what you have breathed out, what you have inspired and preserved for us all these years. Lord, shape us in not only our relationship with you, shape us in our relationships with one another. That what we read in these passages, Lord, would instruct us. I I pray, Lord, for any of us that are living with our eyes fixed on this world now, that you would lift them. I pray, Lord, for any of us that are experiencing uh, relational rifts, Lord, that you would mend. That you would work in our hearts, Lord, to whatever degree any of us are holding on to unforgiveness or bitterness. Lord, I pray that you would free us today. I pray you would convict us and that we would turn from that and run to Christ. Lord, I thank you that in Jesus Christ we have sufficient salvation. And so, Lord, would you lead us this morning? Would you empower us? Would you help us to live for you and for your kingdom? Lord, I I just lift up... As well, any who are unable to be here today due to illness or injury, we just continue to lift up Eddie and pray for his strength to return and his ability to rejoin us here in our Sunday gatherings. We just thank you for the privilege it is to be a church family and to be gathered under your word and to receive from you. And so we pray you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. A cave, a coffin, and a comforting word. Let's begin with a cave. Jacob is on his deathbed in Genesis 49. He calls his sons and he charges them to bury him in this cave. 
there are a total of 19 verses that are devoted to this request for burial and the burial itself. And we get all of these names and all of these places. Why does Jacob make such a big deal about where he is buried? Well, the cave is significant. This cave was purchased by Abraham back in Genesis 23. It was purchased as a burying place for his wife, Sarah. Abraham was promised the land of Canaan in its entirety. God had taken him out. He said, look in every direction on this land. It's all going to be your possession, Abraham. But at the time of his life and the time of his death, the only piece of land in the promised land that Abraham actually owned was this field with this cave that he had purchased. And the same was true for Isaac. When Isaac died, this was the only part of the promised land he owned, even though the whole land had been promised to him. And now it's the same with Jacob. And so Jacob's request to be buried in this cave, it's an expressed longing for God to do what he said he's going to do. He said he would be their God and they would be his people. God said He would make them into a great nation. God said that He would give them a land to possess. That He would bless the world through them. In fact, right before He had left the promised land to come to Egypt in Genesis 46, God said to Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And so as Jacob dies, he's looking beyond death for God to do what he said he was going to do. You know, I think often Christianity is talked about for the benefits that it brings in this life. So people might say, hey, become a Christian and your marriage will get better. Become a Christian and have a Christian family. Become a Christian and you will feel this peace like you've never felt before. And all of that is is true. Christianity makes a huge difference in our lives. But at the very core of what it means to walk with God is having hope beyond this life. And that's what we see with Jacob. Church, our best life is not now. It isn't. Our best life is what is coming, being in eternity where there is no more sin and no more sickness and no more pain and no more crying and no more effects of the fall. The Apostle Paul made this clear, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if in Christ, we have hope in this life only, we are of, mo- of all people most to be pitied. A Christian's hope is beyond the grave. We walk by faith and when we come to die, our treasure, our reward, our longing isn't backward, it's forward. And so Genesis 50, it, it, it 
brings us to this point with Jacob's expressed longing of where he was to be buried. And then Genesis 50 gives us a lot of details about this burial and the route they took for the burial. And there's a number of features that stand out. First, the route that they took to bury him, we're told twice that they came to the threshing floor of this guy, Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. A natural route going from Egypt into the land of Canaan would not take anyone near the Jordan River. You just go from Egypt, and voila, you're in Canaan, and you don't have to go. The the Jordan River runs from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. And it's kind of on the eastern side. And so for, for these guys to come in and go roundabout to the other side of the Jordan River, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Possibly they were... There was like some turmoil or some skirmish that they were trying to avoid. But significantly, this is the same route the people of Israel, the same way they end up entering the promised land. From the Exodus, when they leave Egypt and they come into the promised land, they come from the east side of the Jordan and cross the Jordan into the promised land. And so Jacob's body... 400 years before, takes the same route that the people of Israel are going to take when they enter the promised land. It's it's like a first exodus. It's like a first fruits of what's to come. And then as we begin looking at the passage, there's other features that also kind of match up with the exodus. When Joseph says in chapter 50, verse 6, let me please go up, that's very similar to Moses's. let my people go. The chariots and the horsemen mentioned here are again mentioned in Exodus. The leaving behind the flocks and the herds in chapter 50 upon Pharaoh's request is the same request he makes in the exodus. See, this isn't just merely a burial. This is a first exodus with hope of the one to come. And there's a lot of comfort in this. There's a lot of comfort in having someone else go first. Kids do this. If you've ever been to like a park, I've been to parks with my kids and there's like a huge slide and, you know, a bunch of kids talking about, I don't know, it's kind of scary. I don't know if I want to go down this slide. And there's all a lot of this, well, you go first. You go first. And if I see you in one piece at the bottom of that slide, I might try the slide next. Or with food. You kind of get this with food. You know, I don't know, that food looks gross. Here, you try that first. There's a lot of comfort that happens in watching someone go first. And Jacob goes first, and Israel will follow. And you know what? This is exactly what Jesus did. He went first so that we might follow. He suffered first. He died first. He rose again. His resurrection is called a first fruits of those who will rise again. He said that all who trust in Him would take this same path. We, we just sang, and I wrote this down, for He has promised that I too shall rise. 
That's why we stand in the gospel. That's why we sing and we have hope as we know he went first and we're going to take that same path. John 14, he reassures his disciples the night before he's crucified. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So this cave is, it's much more than just a cave. The cave and the path is about living by faith and dying by faith and having hope beyond the grave. So Genesis ends with a cave. Genesis also ends with a coffin. Look at verse 22 again. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, on the heels of all that happened to bury Jacob in the cave in the promised land, why doesn't Joseph go through all of that? Why is he put into a coffin? Well, Joseph is also exercising faith, but his faith is in God's promise to bring Israel out of Egypt. God had made this promise back to Abraham in Genesis 15. God had said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's what, that's what Joseph is staking his future upon. Israel is going to be delivered. He trusts God, that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, and he responds in faith. You know, in that famous chapter, Hebrews 11, when it's chronicling everyone's faith, this is the act of faith that's captured for Joseph in Hebrews 11. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, it's not like the exodus was like a few months away or even a few years Israel was in Egypt 430 years. And to give you an idea, back in, this would be, from 2023, this would be back in 1666. 
there was the Black Death plague struck London in 1666. The Great Fire of London was that year. It would be like someone dying of the plague or in that fire saying, hey, I want you to carry my coffin and us now in 2023 carrying the coffin. This is a massive amount of time and yet he is confident and you see how far-reaching his confidence in the Lord is. It's the confidence that says, even though my life is finished, God is still going to do what he said he's going to do. I don't just need God to fulfill everything in my lifetime. He said he would form a people. He said he's going to save a people. And so Joseph at the end is in that coffin pointing to God as a promise-making, promise-keeping God. One to be trusted. And so Genesis ends with a cave. It ends with a coffin. And finally, Genesis ends with a comforting word. A comforting word. Look at verse 15 again. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us. And pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept. When they spoke to him, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery when he was 17. And for 13 years, he was between slave and a prisoner in Egypt until he became second in command to Pharaoh. The brothers who have since met with Joseph are now afraid of Joseph because their father is dead. They think Joseph's going to treat them harshly for what they did. But their fear is unfounded. Because from that first moment when they saw Joseph and when he revealed himself to them, he's treated them with nothing but kindness and provided for them, and promised to continue doing so. But this is the first time recorded for us in Genesis that the brothers actually ask for forgiveness. And Joseph responds just in an amazing fashion. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the comforting word. Twice 
Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear. And then he gives them three reasons why not to fear. He says, am I in the place of God? Joseph has no desire to play God with his brothers. Earlier in Genesis, one of the names of God that Abraham uses is he calls God the judge of all the earth. And so Joseph, though greatly sinned against, he knows his place. You know, I think often in conflict, this is one of those things we can lose sight of. We can begin to slip into taking the place of God as judge. That it feels good to repay evil for evil. To judge, to seek out vindication. But the brothers here, they don't need to be afraid. Joseph comforts them that he, he knows his place. Am I in the place of God? The answer is no. And then Joseph gives them a second reason not to fear. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And this is a powerful statement. I mean, the brothers selling Joseph into slavery wasn't just like foolishness or youthfulness or ignorance. He calls it what it is. He says, you meant it for evil. In forgiving his brothers, Joseph doesn't water down their sin. You know, I think sometimes that is what can be perceived about forgiveness, that forgiveness is us saying, what you did was just no big deal. And here we see, no, sin is a big deal. But in forgiveness, that big deal is canceled. That debt is erased in forgiveness. And Joseph's confidence to do so was because he realized God meant that sin for good. God meant what they did to bring about the salvation and the preservation and the rescuing of many people. What God did brought about help of sending Joseph to Egypt helped Egypt, and it helped Jacob's family be preserved throughout that famine. God meaning things for good and working behind the scenes is a major theme in Genesis and a major theme in the Bible. This is the providence of God. God allows people to sin And yet at the same time, he overrules their sin to bring about his good purposes. God doesn't sin. God doesn't make people sin. People choose to do it, but sin occurs within the dominion where God reigns over everything. John Piper writes of this phrase, he says, Be careful not to water this down. It does not say God used it for good. Or God turned it for good? It says God meant it for good. They had an evil purpose. God had a good purpose. God didn't start cleaning up halfway through this sinful affair. He had a purpose, 
a meaning from the beginning, from the start. He meant it for good. And so Joseph is empowered. He's able to bring his brothers a comforting word. Do not fear what you meant for evil. God meant for good because he's confident in the powerful providence of God. And church, there there are some hard situations. There are some areas of sin that we encounter, both our sin and sin against us, that need a healthy dose of the providence of God to face. You know, I think if we lose sight of the providence of God, you know what becomes big in our eyes? Sin. The sin of parents. The sin of a spouse. The sin of our children. The sin of a close friend. I was thinking about this passage in light of where we are at this kind of cultural moment. If this was 2023, many people would be telling Joseph, you just leave and cancel your toxic family. What a mess. They betrayed you? You are the victim, Joseph. Walk away. But Joseph rejects this scapegoating and he moves toward his brothers and says, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And then he gives a third reason for his brothers not to fear. Verse 21. I will provide for you. Joseph chooses to repay evil with good. And we are so often tempted to repay evil with evil. Someone wrongs us, we so badly just want to wrong them back. It is very difficult to forgive. In fact, forgiving and repaying with good those who do us evil, those are possibly the hardest things that we will ever have to do. Which is why I think God has all of us on the side of needing forgiveness before we have to extend that to others. You see, before you and I ever have to forgive someone, ever have to repay someone's evil towards us with good, we have already been in that place of with God and our wrongs and our sin against a holy God. And yet, We have not been repaid evil for evil. We have received good for what we've done. You see, this gets us to the very heart of the gospel. And what Joseph is doing with these comforting words is he's readying us for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is the one who is actually in the place of God, able to judge us? It is Jesus. Who who is the one who had all of these things where he was treated with evil, but God worked it for good? He wasn't only betrayed and sold, but beaten and denied and crucified. It's Jesus. And so who chooses to say to those very ones that sinned against him, I will provide for you. Everything you need, every spiritual blessing, it's Jesus. 
Timothy Keller summarizes it this way. He says, Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. So before we're in Joseph's place, before we're having to extend forgiveness to other people, we are actually more like the brothers in need of that forgiveness. And Jesus embodies this comforting word. Church, we deserve God's wrath for our sin. We deserve to to be held to account for what we did. But instead, God moves toward us. God sent His Son to die for us on the cross as our substitute and then raises Him from the dead and then reassures us, you have nothing now to fear. What you've done and meant to do in evil, God is turning for good. He promises to provide for us. He promises to not treat us as our sins deserve. What a reassurance this morning, church, that we have in Christ. If I could invite the worship team to return. We have a cave, a coffin, and a comforting word. And if you look at verse 25... uh, Joseph's last words before he's placed in the coffin, he says two times, God will surely visit you. And hundreds of years later, when they had felt forgotten, when it seemed like they were nowhere on God's radar, the people of Israel stuck in Egypt, stuck in slavery, God visited them. He raised up a Redeemer to rescue them out of slavery. That was the Exodus. But then thousand, over a thousand years later, God visited again. When the Virgin Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, Zechariah's tongue was loosed, and he proclaimed these words in Luke 1. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God will surely visit you. God has visited us. His name is Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus Christ. And so Genesis begins with this God dwelling with His people in the garden. And it ends with this hope of that presence one day being restored. Church, we get to enjoy that restored presence. We get it through Jesus Christ. God visits us, and then the Bible ends with that same note of hope. He will surely come again. He will visit us surely. And so this is why we are beckoned from beginning and end of the Bible to live and to die by faith. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it is immensely glorious that a way has been made. Lord, I thank you that the grave is not the end. But I do pray you would help us to set our hope beyond the grave and beyond this life. 
Lord, we thank you that in and of ourselves, we cannot bring comforting, forgiving, reconciling, generous words to others. But empowered by you, we can. Thank you that we're on the receiving end of that. Thank you for not canceling us. Thank you for not looking at us and saying, toxic, I'm done with you. But for making a way when it seemed like there was no way. Thank you for visiting us yourself. We praise you and we set our hope on you beyond this life. Our hope in life and death is Christ and Christ alone. We pray these things in his name. Amen.